Thank you for joining for this episode of the Techspective podcast. Uh, it's a little bit of a, a, a milestone. This is the 100th episode. And so uh, in honor of the 100th episode, I went back into the archives to figure out, OK, well, who was the first episode? Let's 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 have that person back on for the 100th episode. So um, I've invited uh, Malcolm Harkins to join me again. So, Malcolm, if you want to give a little bit of uh, your your background and what you're up to. Hey, thanks, Tony, and uh, excited to do this, uh, starting with the uh, number one. I remember when we did that a while back, and uh, now episode 100 is a great milestone, so congrats on that. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm currently Chief Security and Trust Officer with Epiphany Systems, uh, you know, early stage uh, cybersecurity startup. Um, excited, uh, you know, when I joined the company well over a year ago, we launched uh, going into Black Hat last year. And so we're, you know, 15 months old, give or take a little bit. And, uh, you know, prior to that, spent uh, a small stint at a web application security company. Prior to that, at Silence as Chief Security and Trust Officer. And then prior to that, my life was simple. I was at Intel for 24 years and was Worldwide Chief Security and Privacy Officer. All right. Well, you know, I mean, I've known, I've known you for uh, a few years now. And, you know, one of the things, you know, I, I always appreciate your candor. Um, and, and I think you bring, you know, I think you bring a lot of, uh, you bring good insight um, uh, to, to, you know, conversations about um, security strategy and, and, you know, uh, various, you know, the, the various roles and, and really kind of like, what's the goal of cybersecurity and, and, and things like that. So I always find the conversations very interesting um, personally. Um, you know, recently you had published an article about uh, integrity matters and, and kind of the, the role of integrity for, you know, cybersecurity executives, which seems uh, particularly relevant uh, given recent events uh, with Uber, recent events with Twitter uh, and, and and such. And, you know, I guess I will start from I, I've already seen this sort of like, you know, this evolution in the in kind of the maturity of the of the role of a CISO in terms of it really kind of being like a, you know, it has it has the C at the beginning, but it wasn't it's not really C-suite, you know, it's it's kind of like junior C-suite and a lot of organizations really kind of treat and have treated traditionally the CISO as the convenient fall guy when something goes wrong. I mean, you, you bring them in and that's the person you let go when the shit hits the fan. Um, <laughs> I do think there's been an evolution. I think I think that, you know, organizations have matured their thinking and there's a greater understanding of the importance of the CISO. I think CISOs have done a better job of understanding the business value of what they do. And and so it has it has changed. But now I'm curious, you know, given given, uh, you know, the recent, uh, you know, the court case with Joe Sullivan and the things with Mudge, like what what are your thoughts on on the evolution of that role and 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 where does the responsibility lie? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I don't think there's an easy answer other than for me, other than the scope of the role from when I first started doing this 20 plus years ago till now the intent of the role has never changed and i having grown up in finance originally and being indoctrinated and 
molded into thinking about financial integrity and financial reporting. And even if it's a forecast that you're doing for a future business or pricing or that type of stuff, there has to be integrity in those things, whether they be, again, forecasts around things or whether they be actual reporting. And so I've always approached my role that way because of how I grew up. Now, what I published in that article, and that article was was the outcome of dialogues that I've had for quite a long time in the industry. But a couple of years ago, I had led a discussion at RSA uh, conference webcast on integrity matters where I had a few peers join me. And we talked about the the pressures that that were under not only from the threat actors and threat agents, but also the internal pressures from the organization, uh, you know, because of budgets and people and all these forces against us. And one of the forces that we started talking about was the pressure to water down, whitewash, or somehow change the portrait of risk internally and whether or not any of us have ever faced those pressures. And we all openly discuss the fact that, yes, that occurs, because in, in many cases, risk is qualitative, right? And there's opinion bias and perspectives and stuff like that. And I think of risk sometimes like a, a prism, right? Depending upon the hue of and strength of light you're shining through it and the angle you're doing it, the, 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 the reflection on the other side of it is a little bit different. And, and so we all have this misperception of risk. And sometimes it's unintentional. Sometimes it is quite intentional. And we were talking about those aspects. Now, after that, um, in, in late 2020, I did a survey of over 100 um, professionals in, in our space, you know, executives and directors as to whether or not they've ever been asked to or actually watered down risk and, and stuff. I found that 76% of us have either been asked to water down the portrait of risk or have actually done it. There's only 24% who've said they've never done it or never been asked. And, and so when you start peeling the onion on other stats, you know, National Association of Corporate Directors a couple of years ago had surveyed board directors. 61% of them said that they would compromise on cybersecurity for a business objective. Um, ISAC or ISSA a year and some ago had done a survey of not only executives, but also of security professionals and asked their confidence in cybersecurity. The executives, the business executives, CEO, CFO, general counsels, 84% of them said they were confident in their cybersecurity posture. Only 31% of us that are actually managing it are confident in it. So you have this massive misalignment of perspectives, and I think the data does indicate that management teams will reduce the portrait of risk. Why? Because they can, and it's easier for them to do it and, and stuff like that. So we're, we're really faced with those pressures. And then when you think of, you know, what's happened with, with Joe Sullivan, with Uber, what, what Mudge did with Twitter, there was another, um, um, uh, whistleblower class action lawsuit filed by a woman in Oregon against a healthcare organization recently as well, saying that healthcare organization failed to adequately protect 
not only the the privacy and, and, and personal data of employees, but also patients. So I think we've, we've got this um, confluence of these forces now bubbling because we've been at this for decades and we haven't necessarily solved the problem. You've, you've seen the Solarium Commission set of recommendations, the SEC is taking more action. So for me, it, it's, it's codifying more specifically the real accountability and liability that the role in my mind always had and should have had. And I've been a proponent of having more and I'm not a big believer in regulation because I think in some cases it, it, it creates more churn and, and doesn't solve the issues. But I, having run a good chunk of Intel Sarbanes-Oxley effort back in 2004, you look back and we've had for decades, while we haven't eliminated financial reporting challenges and issues, by and large, we've, we've reduced the financial integrity and financial reporting um, yeah, misrepresentations that have occurred in public companies by and large. And so I think we've got to do something similar to that. I believe that it should be codified in a way that the CEO, general counsel, CIO, CISO, chief privacy officer, chief technology officer has to annually attest to their state of internal controls that to the best of their ability and best of their knowledge, they have the right controls to prevent a material event from occurring, or if it does occur, that they've got the right capabilities to respond to it so that it doesn't magnify either to affect its shareholders or, or its customers, and in some cases, society. So, you know, I think we're starting to see that. And I think, you know, I don't know the, the specific merits, obviously, of what happened at, at Uber, but, you know, Joe was recently, you know, found guilty. Um, for his role in that, um, you know, Mudge at Twitter did a whistleblower. So I think you're now starting to see those forces really codify that accountability, but it needs to go beyond the accountability of the CISO and it needs to be the other corporate execs as well as a part of that decision making and what I'll say future attestation processes that need to be put in place. Well. Right. So I, I, I'm curious, you know, like. It, it, in part, does it seem like. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe part of the problem is. Who the CISO reports to. Like, like if you change that organizational structure so that they were responsible to. You know, some some. I, I, like I, I guess you, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of like how do you change the incentive from, you know, protect the business to have integrity about your your risk reporting. Well, like I said, this is this is a is there's there's a, a view that structurally it's in the wrong spot. And to some extent that's true. To some extent that's wrong. I've reported to CIOs for years until I didn't. Um, and it didn't really matter to me if I reported the CIO or somebody else. I looked at my role as having integrity and independence from whoever I reported to. Why? Because that's how I viewed it, much like a CFO would, much like the head of internal audit who generally reports to the CFO should, right? Um, and so I think it's 
to some extent a structural problem because structure drives behavior because it creates boundaries and and we've seen over the years and i saw this at intel and i see it a lot of organizations the cio's role in some organizations very broad but in other organizations the cio's roles pcs laptops the internal network you know the enterprise applications end user productivity but it doesn't span into their web apps it doesn't span into the technology and services that they're creating out to the world for consumers and products and services and support and so if you're stuck under somebody who has what well, i'd say the back office and internal employee user productivity scope well then you're missing the rest of the scope of information and technology that's in use or in creation in your organization so that's that's where you know again you need to th perhaps think about structuring it differently or you look at it and you go well maybe i have a uh, chief security officer chief product security officer for those external things but even there We've seen with SolarWinds, and I saw at Intel, there's an inextricable link between my internal InfoSec and the technology I'm putting out to the public. You know, if I own your internal systems, I can own your products and services going out to the marketplace, right? And, and then make it even more further complicated if you're in a manufacturing environment and you have operational technology, those are generally owned by the manufacturing team, right? But there's again, linkages between your IT environment, your OT environment, your products and services that have technology dependencies. And unless you have a structure that threads them all together so that you understand more holistically the risk issues, the threat vectors, and the implications of it, you're going to either over control for risk or under control for risk. And in many cases, and I would venture to say most, it's under controlling for risk because you don't understand those interdependencies. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, it also seems like there's culturally there are there there there's there's some conflicts because we do things like you know uh, you know have like blameless postmortems you know for for events. It's like because you want to be able to to share exactly what happened you know, without someone fearing that, you know, they're going to, they're going to lose their job. Like you, you know, because if, if, if that's on the line, then you're not going to get straight answers. Um, so yeah. And, and, or you look at the, in the healthcare, you know, they, they have mortality boards, like, you know, internally, they know why you died. You know, they have meetings behind closed doors to talk about why you died. They just don't tell you why you died, you know, or to tell your family why you died like that. That's, that's inside, inside information. And again, I, I, I mean, I kind of get it. Like I understand that they're, they're trying to learn from the mistakes and, and they want to have those open conversations about, okay, what went wrong and how do we prevent that from happening in the future? And you need to have it be blameless in order, in order to have that, 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 you know, sense of, of openness and freedom to, to share what actually happened. But the flip side of that is, People have a right to know like why someone died or people have a right to know like why this breach happened or whatever um, to some extent. And so like no, I, those things I totally, seem to be in conflict. I totally agree with you. And the thing that, you know, is interesting because there are public instances where there's been commissions and, and reports. OPM had one, Equifax had one, you know, they're, they're detailed reports, hundreds of pages. I've, and I've read them. 
And and in many cases, even there, you know, the typical thing that we tend to do is we blame the user. They clicked on something, right? Or we blame we didn't patch a system, right? In in while those are accurate things that a user clicked on something or a system didn't get patched, that doesn't mean that you need to have a material event occurs. That means you had a systemic set of internal controls failures that led to that material event. So you can't just go do this, you know, um, simplified view for the sound bite that that we've had a tendency to do because once the system is popped, the anatomy of the breach is pretty co complex going through the environment. In some cases, it's pretty simple. It could be a configuration error, right? Well, so then the question becomes, do you blame the systems administrator or do you blame the fact that we weren't monitoring for the system being out of configuration? To, you know, so there's a lot of blame to go around. And so we all own the blame, but in order to have it be done right, to your point, it needs to be blameless. Now, where there was gross negligence on the part of, I'll even say a developer, who left a vulnerability in place that was obvious would have been exploited, there should be a level of accountability. There should be a level of performance management. And depending upon the extent of the negligence in some cases, and I'm using that word intentionally, there should be termination. Or if it is sufficient negligence, maybe there should be other civil or criminal charges, just like there would be if I was in charge of safety at a factory and I was grossly negligent and somebody died. Right. Agreed. But I, I guess I would caveat that from a, at least at least with the, the, the developer sense of. I feel like there should be the multiple guardrails, like if, if, if a developer is negligent and leaves a vulnerability, like they know the vulnerability is there and they make a conscious decision like, no, I don't feel like dealing with that. I'm just going to leave it there should be checkpoints still like the, something else should catch that and then you and then you know you go back and, and deal with that like, that shouldn't be your excuse for why your whole system got breached it, um, you're exactly making my point there's a cascading set of control failures that even if the developer says screw it i don't care that should have caught it and forced a correction or even if the perspective was yeah that's a vulnerability but we think the the implications of it are low Accepting a risk and acceptable risk are two different things. And accepting risk is not a control, it's a business process. And if you accept risk, you also are accepting the accountability to respond to it when and if it manifests itself so that it can be managed and mitigated before it becomes a material event. Yeah, well, and this is uh, this is a, a little bit of a well I got two 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 points number one um i was going to say uh, i have maintained for a, a, a while you know that it seems like every time there's a breach there's there's sort of like default boilerplate uh language companies use about how it was a sophisticated nation-state attack and, and yada 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 yeah, great way to deflect the liability but now the insurance companies are uh saying okay well if it's a nation-state actor we're not going to cover you well, and, and my point was always, I don't care. 
like your your job is to protect the systems. Like you don't get to like shrug your shoulders and be like, well, you know, it was you know it was China, it was Russia. What are you going to do? Um, you know, it it it's you know I don't know. It's like you know being an NFL football team, and you know usually you play defense, but like you know if you're playing against uh, you know Tom Brady, you just go. It was Tom Brady. What are you going to do? Yep. Um, and that's not an excuse. Like you still, you still have to defend. Um, and, 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 and frankly, most of the time it ends up that it wasn't all that sophisticated. I mean, look at colonial pipeline or whatever, like, you know, initially you're like, oh, you know, it was, it was this Russian ransomware group and they were trying to take down the, you know, the oil production or whatever, but it's like, well, no, you left a zombie VPN account open. You're like, (laughs) it was, it was actually kind of simple, really. Yeah. But Um, even there, even there, you look at it and you go, even with that, that was the initial entrance point. They right. still had all the traversals that occurred and that caused the issue that then caused right. Colonial to go, well, we want to get paid, so let's shut off the billing system. Then that had a cascading effect that then shut off the flow of of uh, you know oil and gas. So right. again, the, the oh, even complexity you know, tar- of the system yeah. and the like decisions We talk about Target is, all the time. We talk yep. about Target all the time from the standpoint of, oh, well, they had this HVAC contractor and then and, and, and that was the weak link and then and, and that's how the attackers got in. It's like, yes, that's how the attackers got in. That doesn't explain how you let them take everything down, though. That doesn't explain how you missed, you know, 10,000 alerts <laughs> telling you that there was a problem. So, like, you can't just blame the HVAC contractor. Like, there was a systemic problem here. Which gets to my point around... Um, financial integrity and financial reporting. You're always going to have anomalies in inventory counts. You're always going to have invoicing challenges and and time date stamps and shipment things and all these contractual stuff. But at the end of the day, you're responsible for putting in place the processes to ensure the integrity of your financial reporting and in your forecasts because the forecasts of the street you know are what people also are you know uh making investment decisions around and so while it's different it's not that different if we systemically looked at the things that could cause a material event right and we don't necessarily do that today we do this broad-based whack-a-mole thing all the time and people don't really understand what connects to what that can cause that oh shit moment and then from there back out from that that exposure that material event looking at the threads of what could cause it and then managing and mitigating those things and we we can't eliminate risk but we can manage it better and by and large in my opinion Having done this for a couple decades, I think you can you can by and large come very close to eliminating material events. You can't fully do it, but I think you can if you create the right business processes, put in the right controls, um, have the right decision making, and drive the right accountability um, within the companies. Um, because I've done that. I've I've had you know, thousands of malicious code incidents. None of them became material. I've had 26,000 systems bricked. Wasn't ransomware. It was a bad dat that was pushed from McAfee. But guess what? 26,000 systems bricked. Did it cause a material event? No, right? 
Um, right. So I've I've experienced a lot of risk issues, but I've also been within companies that allowed me to manage it and create that right connective tissue so that they the, the events don't become material. They are manageable. Well, and I, I, I when when I think about those things, I think about um, the, the the time management grid from uh, uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which I believe actually he pulled it from somewhere else, and so I'm, I I don't know the original attribution, but the idea of something being urgent versus important. Yep. And how some things you end up dealing with because they feel urgent, but they're actually a distraction. They're actually, you know, they're actually like not, they're not important. Like they feel urgent. And so, the, and so now you've disrupted everything you're doing to deal with this urgent thing that doesn't matter. You're, you're exactly right. The, the, I did a, a cup for a year and some with, with Keon Williams, who runs the cyber uh, uh, security strategy retreat, a, a series of um, what I called extinction event dialogues because from a thought exercise i always worried about extinction level events right so what are the things that could cause an extinction level event in your company right that should already be on the corporate enterprise risk map and then what are the cyber related technology related direct or indirect things that could trigger those extinction events if you have if you're under-resourced, under-budgeted, under-funded, those are the things you should focus on, right? Because at the end of the day, that's what the board cares about. All that's, the rest of it's just operational risk, which is important, but it won't kill you, right? Yeah. Well, so the, the other point that I was going to make earlier when I said I had two, um, was the, the, this notion of, of of hiding things? You know, like companies like to like you know if they don't, if they're not legally obligated to disclose that they were breached, then they're probably not going to um, because you know it you know like I say it, it looks bad to investors, it looks bad to consumers. Like you know, no one no one wants to go out on you know be be a headline in the news about how they were breached. Um, so if you can cover it up, you know why wouldn't you? Um, and, you know, last year, late last year, there was a, you know, so, you know, ransomware has evolved from, you know, ransomware to double extortion, triple extortion, quadruple yep. extortion. And, you know, the standard double extortion is, well, I'm going to exfiltrate your data first. And then, you know, so, so, so you can't just restore from backup because I'm, you know, I'm also threatening to leak or sell your data if you don't pay this ransom. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an extra incentive to pay the ransom. Um, but there was a there was an attack late last year that took that and flipped it and took away the the, the ransom, which basically took away the encryption part. And they said, well, we're just going to exfiltrate the data and then demand a ransom to not expose the data. And at the time I noted it because I said, you know what, this is sort of brilliant because a company can't hide a ransomware attack really like you know when when a ransomware attack takes your systems down you know when your colonial pipeline and everything goes offline or whatever it's hard to hide that yeah well it, it depends if if you uh let's let's imagine you're a, a retail 
um, food and beverage organization with a thousand restaurants across the United States or fast food, you could have 20 of them go down and you could hide it. Right. It's not material right. from a revenue perspective, but you right, want to get them the, back up. Right. Other, so you could pay the ransom. It's just if all of them were out, then. But this then, other model, uh, this other model, I thought, you know what, this could this could this could catch on because organizations, I think a lot of organizations would like to just pay the ransom. Like if they, all, all, all else being equal, they would rather just pay the ransom and be done with it. Um, except for that, you know, I mean, while I was at Cyber Reason, we did multiple studies about how, you know, 80% of those who pay the ransom end up getting hit again frequently by the same uh, same threat group and within a month of the first attack or whatever. So it's like once you pay the ransom, you basically put a target on your back that you're a company that pays the ransom. Well, um, the, the other issue you've got with paying ransom, and I've always thought this well before ransomware came to be because I had a couple instances where um, individuals wanted to extort um, in order to not disclose stuff. Um, never paid them, never planned to. I think there's a proportionality in making the decision to pay ransom or not pay ransom because I think you always have to assume on the other side of the payment, there's an individual or organization that is either potentially a terrorist organization, uh, a bad nation state actor, organized crime that is doing human trafficking, prostitution, drugs. So you have to assume that you're aiding criminal elements or people that are harming people. And if you frame your payment as, I might be enabling somebody to harm people by that payment, it gives you pause. Right. Well. I mean, the reality is, even if it's just cyber criminals, the fact that you're paying them money, you know, funds future development of of, of additional exploits and malware. Like, so there, there, there absolutely is going to be a harm component. But to your point, I think I think some organizations don't actually stop and think about this. But by paying the ransom, especially if you're not really sure who the ransom group is, you might be violating you know, federal or international laws, because if you're paying, if you're paying yeah, a ransom yep. to a group that's been sanctioned and that you're not allowed to funnel money to them because they're a terrorist organization or they're a, you know, they're, a, they're an enemy nation state, um, then, you know, you're, you're, you're now, you know, crossing the line. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I've always thought that now on the other hand, I don't believe that we should make it illegal to pay ransoms. And, and here's the, basic reason why if if it was illegal to pay a ransom you might actually be causing substantial harm so imagine again an operating room gets ransomed or a hospital gets ransomed and you can't pay and 10 patients die so there's a there's a proportionality in those decisions but if you're just losing output and losing revenue well shame on you for being in the situation that you know, you got ransomed and now you're you're uh, losing revenue. You should eat the revenue loss, suck it up and do a better job next time rather than pay the ransom. Malcolm opinion on how I'd make those decisions. If I made a mistake and it's only impacting me and my shareholders, I should be accountable for it. If it has broader societal implications or life or death consequences, you know, again, you can't eliminate risk. So even if you're doing the best things, could you get ransomed? Yes, but if you've done them right, the ransomware impact, while 
painful might be only the equivalent of a broken leg versus, you know, a catastrophic injury. Agreed. And, you know, and, 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 and I've, I've, I mean, and I've written as much to say, you know, like you should never, you should never pay the ransom, you know, unless life, you know, and unless human lives are on the line. And however, then, then that actually sparked like a somewhat more philosophical debate about it, about, okay, but what if, what if the material impact of this ransomware attack on the company is such that the company is going to go out of business and 3,000 people are going to lose their jobs? Because like you said, a societal, a societal implication, in which case that might be the right decision to pay. But this brings us back to the beginning of the dialogue around the integrity of the role. You know, we, we've walked through a variety of um, items and it all boils down to the integrity of the role, the integrity of the decision making, and whether or not the individual in the role, regardless of where they report, has the backbone and the um, personal belief that they have the authority, whether or not it was actually given them to them or not, to force these discussions and dialogues and walk up the chain of command to the board of directors, if necessary, to have the right dialogue to make sure the right things get done. And the integrity of the risk portrait is accurate, not only in the state of the state and the potential future risks, but also in um, the event side of it when something occurs in terms of the actions that you take and the decisions that you made. But sweeping things under the rug is never a good idea. True, but to, to go back to my, my kind of initial thing about who do they answer to, um, you know, I look at it like, uh, like having an attorney. So like if, 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 you know, if I have an attorney, you know, that attorney's job is to protect me. Now, my attorney might give you advice, you know, if we were both involved in something, my attorney might give you advice, but you have to kind of take that advice with a grain of salt because, you know, the attorney works for me and ultimately their job is to protect me, even if that means throwing you under the bus. So when it comes to like a CISO type role, yes, you want them to have integrity and you want them to, you know, do their job with integrity. But I think we need to define who that integrity is to. And, 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 you know, like, is the integrity to the consumer and the general public or is the integrity to the board or is the integrity to, you know, partners like, you know, because the, the answer is yes to all of them. My role from the day that I landed doing this while I was still not even a, I was at the early stages of being a senior manager, I had a responsibility to the business, the shareholders its customers, and given spot, Intel spot in the computing ecosystem, society. I've always viewed it that way, regardless of my title, regardless of my grade level. That is the mentality that, that we need to embody um, in the community, and regardless of where they report. And so there's, there's a portion that says, and I've, I've had this dialogue with many peers, they're like, well, but, but I need to report here to have that. I'm like, no, you need to act that way and do that to get there. Because guess what? That proves the seniority 
and and the worthiness you have to have the seat at the table when you when you act a certain way and you take on certain responsibilities you, you know you know the ceo doesn't become a ceo um just because you know of of how good they did at things there is aspects of that role same with the cfo and general counsel they don't just get anointed because they were a great business unit general manager they have to show other qualities other characteristics and now to some extent again i think if we can codify the integrity and accountability and responsibilities similar to a cfo that will cause a natural elevation of the role but but we also have to be stepping into it and pushing that. And I know a lot of peers that would would prefer to wear Teflon skin and say the business accepted the risk. The legal told me to do this and deflect it. They still want the seven figure salary, but they don't want that level of accountability and responsibility. And, and I look at that and I say, shame on you. Step into that because that's what's required. Um, all right. I mean, I think that's a, you know, probably a fair, a fair place to to wind down the conversation. But uh, I, I want to thank you for joining me. Uh, you know, like I said, you know, it, it, I think it took a little while longer than I anticipated <laughs> to 100 episodes. But uh, but 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 we got here and, uh, you know, I'll, uh, you know, hopefully come come back to you for, you know, episode 200 or something. Uh, yeah, 200, in, 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 in 300, 1000. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so thank you. Thanks, Tony. I appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast, but I also invite you to engage on social media. Uh, please go like our Facebook page and follow at Techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know what you like, let me know what you don't like, let me know if you love it, let me know if it sucks and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, questions you'd like to see answered in future posts.